Biden administration goes back to the Human Rights Council at the UN as a standoff with the International Criminal Court takes shape. The Senate votes 97 to 3 to keep the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem and UN inspectors discover more evidence of undeclared nuclear work in Iran. And it could be a new hit from Uncle Moishi, Ain't Gonna Impeach on Saturday. We'll tell you about the unlikely twist in Donald Trump's impeachment trial. All that, and we welcome a very special guest to the podcast, Ileana Johnson, editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. And welcome back to episode five of Jewish Insiders Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. I'm Jared Bernstein. We've got a lot of news to cover and and an exciting guest. But real quick, Rich, how are the chicken wings? I'm so glad you asked. Uh, They were fantastic. Uh, In case I didn't mention where the kosher barbecue place was, Milt's Kosher Barbecue for the Perplexed, a little bit of a joke on Maimonides. Uh, If you ever come through Chicago, great kosher barbecue. The chicken wings were amazing. And congrats to the Glazer family down there in Tampa Bay on excellent Super Bowl victory. Uh, How was your Super Bowl? My Super Bowl was great, but it was, it sort of felt a lot like my regular football season and that I was really rooting against Tom Brady and it just didn't, you know, didn't pan out. Patrick Mahomes is going to have a great career, but he just was playing behind two backup tackles and a, uh, and uh, with an injury. So. By the way, Uncle Miltz, if you want to send us some wings to have on air, we're all ears. Oh, we're going to have a salami off, and now we'll have a wing off. Uh, it just it, We'll just keep inventing more something offs every week until somebody actually sends us some food. But until then, let's get on with the news of the week. Our first topic this week. The U.N. Human Rights Council, the Biden administration announcing that it was going to go back to the U.N. Human Rights Council. This is an agency that was set up back in 2006. The Bush administration back then opposed its creation, did not join, said that they thought it would be biased, uh, the way that the election and the membership criteria worked, that human rights abusers would be elected to the council, that it would just be a forum for bashing Israel. And indeed, that is how it has uh, evolved over the years. The Obama administration went in for eight years, tried to reform it, uh, didn't get much out of it. The Trump administration stayed in for a year and a half, tried to reform it, couldn't do it, withdrew the United States in 2018. And now we have an announcement from Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State. We're going back in because we can fix it from the inside. Jared, how do you respond to that? Yes, my question is, is what happened with the Trump administration leaving for two and a half years? Uh, you know, not much changed. And they weren't in the room denouncing every anti-Semitic and every anti-Israel uh, resolution that came out of it in during the proceedings. I think we both can agree that the, that the body is flawed and has operated in a flawed way. I think, you know, something's got to be done to change the calculus. And I think... Uh, Tony Blinken wants to try it his way and, you know, Hatzlacha to him to uh, to try and get something done. So so I think it's a fair point. Right. And, and, and I acknowledge that that when we're inside the Human Rights Council, the knock is we are legitimizing all of its wrongs. And I think that is a credible argument. When we left the Human Rights Council, we didn't do anything more besides leaving. Right. So it's still there. It's still doing all the bad things. So we haven't replaced it. We haven't degraded it. So that's an argument, uh, a knock against the Trump administration as well. 
But I think you look at it today. I mean, China just got elected in the middle of a genocide in Xinjiang. I mean, it's just ludicrous that they're on the Human Rights Council. It still has only one country on its agenda that it bashes regularly. It's the state of Israel, which is rated as a free country with all these other human rights abusers, you know, wandering the earth uh, completely untouched by this council. So you can't just go in and say it's going to be better because we're there. You can't leave and say it's going to be better because we're out. There has to be a credible plan to change this fundamentally with our allies. Speaking of flawed international institutions, at the end of last week, we got word that the International Criminal Court uh, believes that its jurisdiction extends to non-member state territories. And why this matters is because, you know, for many years in the absence of a negotiated peace between Israel and the Palestinians, uh, the Palestinians have tried to, or some elements in the Palestinian uh, power structure have tried to use international institutions to fight the fight they can't win in some other forum. And this week, the ICC has said that their jurisdiction extends and it potentially exposes Israeli government officials to prosecution for war crimes. And it's, it's a problem. Uh, the Biden administration said it's a problem. And I guess the question is, how successful can Israel be in leveraging its diplomatic friends along with the United States to oppose this at every turn in the International Criminal Court? Well, that's right. And and there's something called the Rome Statute that sort of governs the way that this court's supposed to function. And the idea from the beginning, at least the supposed idea was there are countries that don't have functioning civil judiciary systems, right? They're not all the United States of America. They're not Israel. They're not democracies uh, that can have a functioning court system to try cases, especially when there's human rights abuses, when there's authoritarian dictators. So this would be for for those that don't have functioning systems, that don't have the ability to investigate and hold themselves accountable, the forum for those. And if you're not party to the statute, then it would have no jurisdiction over you. So this is a huge deal because Israel, the United States, both are subject uh, of some of uh, these attempts to investigate for war crimes, whether in Afghanistan uh, or in the Palestinian territories. Uh, It goes beyond uh, what is in the letter of the Rome Statute. And the Trump administration had a different way of dealing with this, right? We saw a sanctions executive order from President Trump issued to threaten the ICC chief prosecutor and others at the ICC with sanctions. That was opposed by the Biden administ- uh, now Biden administration team uh, when they were out of office. It was opposed by European allies. Uh, they want to return to some sort of an amiable relationship with the ICC. Uh, the question is, there's an election actually ongoing this week for chief prosecutor. Will it be a chief prosecutor that wants to pursue these investigations or will it be someone who says we're leaving this alone? The U S and Israel can, can conduct you know themselves accordingly. Uh, and that'll determine what the space is for the Biden administration to relate to the ICC. Yeah. And I just wonder if, if now that this is sort of coming back around post uh, the crowning foreign policy achievement of the Trump administration, where there is a much more public working relationship between Israel and and some of uh, its Arab neighbors or or the extended region, does that change the calculus for this election? Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see. And 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 I know we'll be following it closely, and 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 have we'll have more to say on that in the future. Speaking of changes in the region, another interesting development this past week: the U.S. Senate was conducting what they call vote arama on the budget resolution uh, that passed uh, through both the House and Senate that cleared the way for what might come in a budget reconciliation. But 
The interest uh, for us today was an amendment to declare that the embassy in Jerusalem, the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem, should stay in Jerusalem, which up until now we had thought would be pretty obvious. It had been stated during the campaign in the early days of the Biden administration that that this would be the case, that they wouldn't move the embassy. And the vote in the Senate was surprising. It was not 100 to nothing. It was 97 to 3. Senators Warren, Carper, and Sanders casting the dissenting votes. Jared, is this in dispute? I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, you got to remember who two of the losers of the Democratic presidential primary were, right? The the Democratic Party has, has made it pretty clear who they want driving the ship on foreign policy, and that's Joe Biden and his team. And while, you know, we would have rather had this be a hundred to nothing, I cannot think of three more, you know, inconsequential votes on this particular issue that has broad bipartisan consensus and a commitment from the Biden administration prior to getting elected and since getting elected that they have no intention of moving the embassy from where it is today. Well, two closing points on this. One, I think it's interesting to note that for Bernie Sanders, one of the three that voted no, his national security advisor is a prominent uh, progressive foreign policy uh, official, Matt Duss, is rumored uh, for a some sort of job appointment at the State Department, according to Politico in the past week. We will talk to our guest coming up, Ileana Johnson, about that. Uh, that so that you know, in the context of this vote, keep that in mind. Uh, but also after the vote, uh, Jim Psaki, the the White House press secretary, was asked about this uh, at the podium and said, you know, just to make sure, based on the vote yesterday, is the position of the Biden administration that you're going to keep the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem? And she seemed to not have an answer ready. She had to say, oh, we'll have to check with the State Department, uh, which, which I thought was sort of a departure from what Tony Blinken had already said in his confirmation here and what we thought was the case. So, I mean, there's a lot of issues that they have to deal with right now on Iran and elsewhere. Uh, Not so smart to not be prepared on something as simple as the Jerusalem embassy. Yeah, I would say a couple things on that. Uh, One is that I'm not, I think it's a miracle that we're actually having uh, White House press briefings by the press secretary for a change. And so we got to give a lot of credit to the person who's up at that podium. They have to have a wide range of information at their fingertips. Uh, you know, publications across the country are attacking Jen Psaki by name every day. And if she wants to err on the side of quadruple checking uh, and come back to it the next day, it doesn't seem like it's a departure in in uh, foreign policy from the Biden administration. So I would rather have her check it and come back the next day and get it right than uh, misstate. And, and when it comes to foreign policy, I know that the Rich Goldbergs of the world will be hanging on every syllable. So I would, you know, I think, I think she knows that too. So I think she's just erring on the side of caution and, you know, knowing Jen Psaki for a, a few years now, she is uh, a, a steadfast uh, friend of the state of Israel and a consummate professional. So I wouldn't read too much into that one. One other issue we'll move on to in the news, uh, Wall Street Journal reporting late Friday that the International Atomic Energy Agency apparently has found more nuclear material, some sort of uranium particles, at a 
recently declared or recently discovered site inside of Iran. Uh, last summer, there was a lot of press reporting about the IAEA wanting to send inspectors into some previously undeclared nuclear sites in Iran. Iran said, no, you can't come. There was a negotiation. Now we understand from the press report, clearly inspectors did go. They took some environmental samples as they did previously uh, back in early 2019 at a warehouse that Prime Minister Netanyahu had uh, exposed at the UN General Assembly. And at this site, more nuclear material apparently came back positive. This has not been confirmed by the IAEA. It was not confirmed by the State Department uh, when they were asked by reporters this week. Uh, But again, you know, in this context, we talked about whether the Biden administration will just try to go back into the Iran nuclear deal or give sanctions relief. This has got to be sort of this bubbling issue of... Do we really know everything Iran has been working on if they're not declaring all their nuclear activities up front, what they worked on in the past, what they're hiding today? How can you give them sanctions relief to go back into a deal that allows them to hide things? Really, I think that's going to be a tough political one for the Biden administration to maneuver. I don't think it's going to be all that tough because I think the Biden administration has been pretty clear about the fact that there have to be serious uh, changes and and increased compliance by the Iranian regime before there's any sanctions relief. And I think that, you know, there's lots of folks trying to stir the pot on this one. Um, It's an important issue, but I think that the the Biden foreign policy team is thoroughly engaged uh, and focused on this. And is take, going to take all the appropriate uh, steps to to get the right deal, not just a deal, back in place that guarantees Israel's security. Well, I'll, I'll put a finer point on it, and it's this. If they come some point this year and say, we're going back into the deal and we're going to lift sanctions, but oh yeah, Iran's allowed under our conditions to continue hiding nuclear material activities and sites. And that's okay. We'll still investigate that, but it's not a condition for us to lift sanctions and go back into a nuclear deal, a nuclear deal. That is not a politically tenable posture, but we'll see. We'll see. And this caught a lot of Beltway attention this week, uh, sort of switching from foreign policy. David Schoen, who is one of the lead defense attorneys in former President Trump's impeachment trial, initially asked Uh, Majority Leader Schumer, and then walked back his ask to not have the uh, impeachment trial continue on the Sabbath. And, you know, it's got a lot of attention. People are talking about it. Um, I guess the question is, what does this mean for the Jewish people and peoplehood? Um, For my money, I think that... Living in a day where a Jew of any political persuasion can ask and be given official recognition of their right to observe uh, is a good day for our republic. It means that religious minorities can be proud religious minorities and proud Jews, even if, by the way, you're arguing uh, for someone or something that I detest personally. Um, but I know that there's a lot of people, uh, you know, that, that would feel otherwise, that it's it's sort of a conversation maybe they would rather not have had in public. And I saw this play out, at least on my social media feeds. I'm sure other people saw this as well. You have one side, if you really just hate Trump, you want to see the impeachment happen, uh, you responded negatively to this, like, oh, this is, it's such a shame, you know, it's a nice thing to be standing up for your religion and, you know, work on Saturday. 
but does it have to be associated with this? Uh, and then you saw some other reactions like, oh, look at this, a modern-day Sandy Koufax. Uh, though I'll say one commenter noted that Sandy Koufax allowed the team to go forward anyways, didn't delay the game, just just didn't participate. Yeah, and you know, ultimately that's where David Cho landed. I would tell you one of the more powerful moments uh, when I was honored to serve as the White House Jewish liaison is being in the in the White House kitchen pre Hanukkah party with the the head of a major American Jewish organization who was who was with his grandson um, and watching as the White House chefs koshered the White House kitchen um, and and whatever your level of observance is to see that recognition in our our governmental structure of, of, you know, how far we've come as a people from being turned away during the Holocaust to getting the White House kitchen koshered or an impeachment trial delayed so that we can be proud Jews. That's a, that's a good day, regardless of your political stripe. That is true. We can agree on that. All right. Well, let's get to our exclusive guest this week, Ileana Johnson and Jared, uh, take it away. Our guest on the pod this week is Ileana Johnson, editor-in-chief of the Washington Free Beacon. Prior to joining the Free Beacon, she served as White House correspondent at Politico and is a regular presence on cable television, including NBC's Meet the Press, CBS's Face the Nation, ABC's This Week, and PBS NewsHour. And she graduated from Yale College with a degree in history, which makes her smarter than Rich and I. Ileana, welcome. Thank you for having me. Do we have? Are we have to. Are we really going to do Yale jokes like this early in the podcast? I mean, it's like episode six. I mean, we got. I. I, I don't want to go there right now. I mean, do we have to go there? Let Let's keep going. Let's keep going. I mean, yeah. If I listen, if I can't take a shot at you once in a while, Rich, why am Northwestern I doing the is the Yale of the Midwest. <laughs> Hey, right, and Johns Hopkins, uh, Johns Hopkins is the is the Yale of the Mid Atlantic. Um, so, Liana, sorry, sorry for that. Uh, for our listeners who might not be familiar with it, what is the Washington Free Beacon? And tell us, do you guys have a particular point of view? Good question. So, the Free Beacon is a conservative website dedicated to reporting. Uh, So we have no op-eds, no opinion, except for the occasional editorial on the site. And our goal really, uh, the way I see it, is to cover Democrats the way that the mainstream media covers Republicans, which is aggressively and holding them to account. And I think the mainstream leaves a lot on the cutting room floor when it comes to news coverage in all these different areas. uh, And we aim to fill that gap. Now, you were mainstream media before this job, obviously at Politico, um, as mainstream as it gets inside the Beltway covering the White House. What is your sort of experiences, uh, the differences in your experiences been coming from mainstream media now outside mainstream media, the way you just described the free beacon? What are the what is the contrast there? What did you like, dislike about your time in mainstream media? What do you like, dislike now? At the Free Beacon. So it's interesting. I've been, uh, I was at Fox News way back when, so I've done conservative cable news. I was then at National Review and I was at a conservative print outlet, but mostly covering Republicans. I was then in the mainstream covering the Trump administration and now I'm back on the right. So I think I've had experiences across a range of uh, different mediums and different outlets. And um, I would say the, uh, my main takeaway is that 
you've got to break news to be relevant. And so my approach is really not all that much different at the Free Beacon than it was at Politico or at National Review, um, but it's focused on a different set of actors, uh, not the White House, but uh, Democrats, and uh, really working to teach young reporters the tools of the trade. What is reporting? What makes a story pop? How do you drive a story? And that's something that I've looked at and tried to do sort of ac across uh, these different publications. And uh, with Politico, it was a little bit different because Politico is kind of like uh, they're, they're the late entrant and always competing with the Times and the Post. And so it was the same exercise of looking for a creative angle to something, looking for uh, how to frame something in a way it hasn't been covered before. And that's, that's very similar to what we do at The Beacon. Um, my view has been really informed by seeing, you know, conservatives dominate cable news, uh, or they did before, you know, recent months at Fox News. But when I was at Fox, they were number one in the ratings all the time. Conservatives were all over talk radio. And it seemed to me that, okay, I mean, I guess that was useful. But what really moved the ball politically was reporting new information. So last week, Politico broke the story, and, and I'm going to kind of we're, – we're going to switch it up this week because usually Rich is the guy who's looking to sandbag on the Biden administration, and I'm, I'm going to try and be a little bit critical. I'm going to try and get out of my comfort zone a little bit here because it's part but, of our – Jared, before you go there, can I just do a quick follow-up question on, on Ileana's question? So, Ileana, you made a comment there that you find that you're the counterpart to mainstream media – which I thought was a very, you know, striking comment. I think a lot of our listeners who are on the Democratic side, you know, will have a reaction to that comment that the mainstream media, in your view, is hostile to Republicans naturally, and you're providing what the mainstream media does to Republicans to Democrats. Is that a fair depiction? And wh wh why make the argument, make the case to people who say like, oh, that's not true. That's what Republican talking points on on the mainstream media. How do you, how does a journalist, how do you say that to people and, and prove that? Sure. I think um, the way I look at it is we, we know the political affiliations of mainstream reporters are, you know, 90, 95% uh, they lean to the left. And I think you just have to put yourself in the shoes of somebody. Are you going to be as aggressive, um, as confrontational, um, as no holds bar? working sources and putting in print uh, items about people who you agree with, who are your friends, who you socialize with. And I think we all know the answer is no. And I, I don't think it's an issue of like blind ideological bias. I just think it's uh, it has more to do with the social circles and the way reporting works. Reporting is a very social enterprise. And we learn information based on like the people we talk to and interact with. And so um, if you're sympathetic to a group of people, uh, to, to Democrats, if you are a Democrat, you interact with them, uh, they're your friends and your family. Uh, you're going to take a different approach to them than is, as if you view them as ideological adversaries. So if I could follow up on your follow-up, Rich, because that was a thoughtful question and a thoughtful answer. Is the last four years of reporting with on the Trump presidency sort of truly indicative of this problem? Or was Trump something different, right? You know, it, it, I, I'm trying to compare this as like, 
is it the same as what the reporting would have been on criticizing George W. Bush, who certainly got his fair share of criticism, but you know the reporting looked very different for George in the in the Bush forty three White House than it, than it did in the Trump White House, and so did sort of Trump create that, and did did um, was sort of Trump a uh, a force for continuing to drive this wedge uh, and force media sources to their extreme ends of their own polls? Um, or, and do you think that that's going to sort of right size itself in the Biden administration or are we just, are we stuck with it for, you know, the foreseeable future? I think Trump accelerated a trend in the media, which was toward um, disaggregation um, and the sort of ideological, um, not really sure the right way to say it, but you know, you can listen and read and watch what you agree with. And some of that was good. You know, you mentioned the Bush administration. Uh, Dan Rather comes to mind as somebody who was held to account um, by these smaller forces in media that have that have gained power. But I think uh, before Trump, mainstream reporters at the Times, at the Post, at the Journal, uh, there was a sense that you should strive for impartiality. Um, and that even if they knew that they had biases, uh, there was an effort to conceal them. And I think Trump did away with that, where there was simply, um, A, uh, reporters were attacked um, by the left for uh, making efforts to cover the administration impartially, accused of both sidesism, and they became uh, the, the financial incentives for them to become uh, Jim Acosta or Katie Turr, people who were uh, viewed as opponents of the president who would get up on their, so they, they became famous. Um, and the story became about them. So I think that's very hard to put back in the box. And what I see now, I mean, it's an open debate, like should reporters strive for impartiality? Uh, so that debate's happening out in the open. I think it's difficult to put back in the box and that now, uh, it, I wouldn't have said this 10 years ago, but I can tell you like the smart young reporters who come in and work for me now, the 24 year olds who are precocious, they say, well, I used to want to go work at the New York times. And now I, I just think there's not really a place for me. Like they want to be Ross, Ross Douthat, but they worry that the rules could change so quickly that they'd be, um, that they'd be tossed out of there. And I think that's a real change, the sense among smart young conservatives that there is no place for them in the mainstream. Speaking of the Times, uh, the Beacon broke some news this week. It ta- you know, reported on the infighting at the Times. Can you tell us exactly what's going on there and, and sort of what the implications are? I mean, I think you already started to answer that question with the, the chilling effect on what young reporters want to do when they grow up and, and be grown-up reporters. But what's going on over there and you know, uh, where, do you, where do you see it leading? Uh, the Times on Friday announced the, you know, quote unquote resignation of a star science reporter, Donald McNeil, who had been investigated in 2019 by the Times for repeating back a racial slur uh, that some students had asked him. They said, uh, you know, one of our classmates said, use this slur when she was 12 years old. Do you think she should pay the price for it now? In answering the question, he repeated it back. The Times investigated and found that it was bad judgment, but not a fireable offense. Uh, Fast forward to 2021, and the Times decides after receiving a letter from 150 uh, exercise staffers that this is a fireable offense and that 
intent doesn't matter when it comes to the use of racial slurs. And according to what Times spokeswoman told us, uh, they have no place in the newspaper, regardless of whether you're repeating rap lyrics or quoting uh, a novel or whatever the case may be. Um, So this sparked a real, I would say, a bitter debate pitting longtime union members of the Times News Guild uh, against each other. Many members of the union frustrated that the union didn't do more to advocate uh, for this reporter. And it left, I think, raised real questions about like the ex post facto justification for this. Um, And so, yes, so the Beacon story was about a private Facebook group where Times, uh, current and former Times reporters are are debating this. And uh, pretty bitterly, I think we've seen uh, a few of these like really tense racial conflagrations within the paper, going back to uh, James Bennett's, the former opinion editor, James Bennett's decision to publish Tom Cotton's op-ed that led to his resignation and uh, an apology by the Times. Now we're in a similar situation with uh, with Donald McNeil. And I would note that. Nicole Hannah-Jones, their star magazine reporter, uh, received a request for comment from one of our reporters about this and responded by publishing his cell phone number, which is a clear violation of the Times' own policies. And it's striking to me that uh, they just dismissed a reporter, you know, asked for the resignation of a reporter who violated guidelines articulated ex post facto. Here with Nicole Hannah-Jones, we have somebody who is... uh, in violation of clearly articulated guidelines by the newspaper. And I've gotten just crickets from Times Management when asking for a response. So just a question on that. I saw that happen. I think they call it doxing uh, in the current lingo uh, of publishing someone's uh, private information online uh, as sort of a revenge tactic uh, when you don't like the questions you're being asked or or you want to get back at somebody. As an editor-in-chief, what do you do to protect your reporters when something like that happens? How do you react to that? The, this is actually the second time this, is, this has happened. It happened when the CNN contributor, Asha Rangappa, published another one of my reporters' phone numbers. When these people are simply doing their jobs, they're uh, submitting professional requests for comment. Um, the first response is to tell the reporters, like, welcome to the big leagues. You know, this stuff happens. It becomes public. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. But for young reporters, that both of the, the people in question are 23, 24 years old, like, you got to have thick skin and keep going. Um, when it comes to my job and advocating for uh, Beacon reporters, that's a different question and uh, a different calculation. But in terms of what I tell the reporters is, like, this is what reporting involves. You're going to get tossed around a little bit. All right. Well, well, this has been a very interesting discussion. The the war within the newsroom, uh, the news that doesn't make the news until it makes the news. Uh, and we'll definitely be following that and getting more perspectives. Ileana, I want to step back a little bit and talk about national and foreign policy uh, within the Biden administration. You're covering it closely. Uh, There was uh, some recent reporting from Politico that Matt Duss, the uh, national security advisor for Bernie Sanders, is being contemplated for some sort of position in the State Department, unknown what that is. Uh, We talked about a little bit earlier in the show. 
Ileana, is is this just some kind of trial balloon that's being floated by the Sanders camp just to get attention and see if they could make an argument, hey, put me in a slot, it's not so bad? Is this the actual Biden administration floating it to see what the reaction is? We saw them do it with Rob Malley, but that ended up going through. Um, Or is this just, you know, made up, it's not going to happen, it's a red herring to distract people? I don't know. Um, read it in the Politico report. Um, and I would say it's not, I don't think it's necessarily just the Sanders campaign, uh, or Sanders aides floating this, uh, because we know that, uh, progressive foreign policy aides delivered, uh, to the Biden transition team, a list of 100 people they wanted to see included in the administration. And I think the context in which, including Matt Duss, I think the context in which to understand that is that Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, um, are seen as uh, center-left Democrats who were broadly acceptable to the right. Um, You know, I think people like me saw those appointments and thought, like, this is pretty good. And I think there was a lot of frustration on the left uh, that, particularly in the realm of foreign policy, they were not getting more of a voice in shaping the policies of the nascent Biden administration. So I do think there's a real concerted effort uh, on the part of the left to strong arm Team Biden into including these people in the administration. And so far, you know, first 100 days, we're just a couple of weeks in. Has anything surprised you so far from the Biden administration? Not in the realm of foreign policy. I would say um, on opening schools, uh, it was something that we've been watching closely at the Beacon. And I think it was it's a real opportunity for Biden and for the administration to take a stronger stance on an issue that's broadly popular among uh, Americans and among parents. This, it seems to me, is like one of these rare political issues that touches everybody directly. Um or a whole lot of people directly. And I'm not sure if I'm surprised, but I'm certainly interested in the fact that the administration has conspicuously backed off their promises to uh, reopen schools in the first hundred days. Well, okay. Shailiana, we're going to shift gears a little bit now, get a little bit more personal if that's okay. We want people to know Ileana, right? <laughs> You're not just the editor in chief of the Washington Free Beacon. I don't know if the people if the people will want to know me, but uh, the people are clamoring. We have a listener mailbox, and it hasn't even aired yet. But I'm telling you, I'm already getting emails. Ask her about her personal life. We want to know the guest. So, Ileana, you're Jewish, and as I understand it, your husband converted to Judaism, which is a pretty tall order. I mean, it's it's trivialized a lot in sort of popular culture that, you know, they have to say no three times <laughs> and that it's not, you know, Ju- Judaism doesn't actively seek converts. So when a conversion happens, it's, it's a... I actively sought. Yeah. Well, well it's, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty meaningful process. So how did you guys meet and what was that journey like for you? And, and maybe tell us a little bit about the, that and, and the role faith might play in the way you uh, approach your job every day. Sure. Um, so... I met my husband, who is a civil servant at the State Department, potential future Matt Dust colleague. Uh, and uh, I met him online in 2016 or 17. Um, and 
he it, he was not Jewish, but he said to me that he had lived in Israel for a year. So he was one of these rare uh, non-Jews who had done a year of grad school in Jerusalem and really loved it. He uh, he works in counterterror, and so he uh, he speaks respectable Hebrew and Arabic. And so I knew sort of after our first date, like there's a little bit of an opening here and uh, it took a while. So the first thing I said to him was like, I just want you to know, like if we ever have kids, the kids have to be Jewish. And then I let a few more months go by. I'm like, uh, really? I think, I think you should convert, but he was very open to it. And I think having lived in Israel, I said, he, he understood why I felt that way. And, and, you know, now of course it's like, we're the typical, like, he's the typical convert like logging into Shabbat services and, and so on. He's, uh, I think more uh, mindful than I am about that stuff. And to the extent that it comes into play, do you find sort of your faith or your Jewish upbringing sort of, how does it impact how you, how you do your job and how you approach the body politic and reporting? A couple things. Um, I'm not sure it, it explicitly approaches how I do reporting, um, but, you know, growing up, um, I wouldn't say we were super observant, but like I, it was clearly important to my parents that we go to Hebrew school, that we be bought mitzvah. Uh, we, you know, we celebrated the holidays and that stuck with me. Like it was very obvious that this was important to them. And my dad would always say, don't turn your back on the Jewish people. Can't ever turn your back on the Jewish people. So in dating and in, you know, getting married, I, I felt that way. And, um, and so I think that aspect of who I am, um, does, colors some of my approach to reporting at the beacon and issues of anti-Semitism where it, it often seems to me that it's sort of the one, ex- the one remaining acceptable prejudice in American life, um, where that is not, uh, universally frowned upon or does not immediately make one. Look, I, I think back to I, when I was covering the white house and covering Congress, when the Democrats uh, couldn't bring themselves to explicitly condemn anti-Semitism after the anti-Semitic statements of one of their members. They had to make it include, you know, all the other forms of bigotry, even though uh, the the match that lit the fire was an instance of anti-Semitism. So I think I'm probably more closely attuned to that stuff, given my background. What is the state of the Republican Party today? I think um, I've I've often said that I think it's uh, I think it's a mistake to look at uh, to look to lawmakers for moral guidance because they are political animals and they are doing their behave doing what's in their political self interest. But uh, the position Kevin McCarthy and the other Republicans were in seemed to me very similar to the one that Nancy Pelosi and her fellow Democrats were in. Uh, Pelosi vis-a-vis Ilhan Omar and uh, McCarthy vis-a-vis Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we saw both leaders get real squeamish when it came to vociferously drawing a red line uh, about what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable in, in either party. And they're both still there. All right. I'm going to respectfully disagree there, but I think, uh, I think and I, about the sort of um, the, 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 I don't, I don't equate necessarily uh, Ilhan Omar and I'm not making apologies for her, by the way, because I think what she says is, is totally out of bounds, but I don't think it's the same, same as what you've heard out of the Republican conference, um, you know, in terms of the, like, so far uh, beyond the pale, but. I agree with you, Jared. 
Well, I, but I agree with you, Jared, in that I think Omar's statements are actually more subtle and I don't want to say more insidious, but um, I think she's very smart and she is, she advances classic anti-Semitic tropes and I think has evinced a real hostility toward Jews and towards Israel without uh, allowing somebody to say like, you're a, you're a crackpot conspiracy theorist, Marjorie Taylor Greene, like she's a crackpot, we can write her off. Yeah, but nobody did in the Republican conference. I mean, right. So, I, it's a problem. Right. So I'm not disagreeing with what you just said, but like, okay, when the person says the crazy out there thing, you have to call them on that. And I agree the sort of in the cloak of normalcy things that, that, that some member, some Democrats say and make it a lot harder because they kind of cloak themselves and either you're worried about some, you know, Palestinian rights or, or, or something. It makes it a lot harder to call it out. Well, well I'll just say, I'll just say to like, to, to, to Ileana's point, I mean, in some ways, the Democratic version of the Republican failure as a caucus to condemn was the whole debacle over the resolution to condemn anti-Semitism in the wake of her comments, right? That was the purpose of it. It was supposed to be a dedicated resolution to put everybody on the record to say these kind of comments are unacceptable, and the caucus imploded. They, we, we can't just call out anti-Semitism. It needs to be an all-condemnation of all forms of hate. We can't single out somebody in our caucus who spoke anti-Semitism. And so, yeah, I do think there is correlation, and I'll connect it to a previous question with this last point. One Matt Duss, who is reportedly up for an appointment to the State Department, tweeted harassing David Harris, the head of the American Jewish Committee this past week, who in fact had tweeted condemnation of both Green and uh, Ilan Omar, equating and saying neither kinds of anti-Semitism are acceptable. And Mr. Duss uh, agreed with Mr. Bernstein on this one and uh, and attacked. So so maybe you would want to see Mr. Whoa, Duss in the state. I don't, I don't know. Listen, let. Uh, oh, Rich, that. Okay, well, right. just That's say really tough, quick, but I. I feel like I ducked your question about about the Republicans um, in like doing a little what about with the Democrats. Um, do I wish? I, I think they should have condemned this. I think there should have been more vocal support for Liz Cheney. And I do think at a certain point, like, you know, Kevin McCarthy has to balance uh, on the one hand, he wants to win back the majority. I understand that. I get it. Um, but at a certain point, uh, when there's an, an unwillingness to confront this kind of stuff, you do risk losing, uh, looking weak, I think. And uh, part of the job is to is to define the bounds of acceptable opinion. That's fair. And that's it, by the way, I appreciate the candor in that answer. And, and, uh, and, and by the way, you know, one of the sort of overriding, uh, thoughts and approaches to this podcast is that Rich and I are going to have these kind of conversations and we're going to do it in the spirit of like understanding and not vilifying each other. And I challenge any other pair of podcast hosts to be able to talk about this in this kind of an environment, um, with this kind of humor and, 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 uh, love of country. So with that, Rich, you want to get to the fun uh, ones? I have been waiting for the fun ones. I think we need some fun ones here. Ileana? Yeah, yeah. Because I, I try to put her on the ropes, and, and, and you know, she came right back at me, which is not a surprise. But I, 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 I Listen, I just call balls and strikes here. That's all. And, and I think pitchers and catchers are reporting <laughs> in like two weeks or something. So we should, we should talk. No, less, less than, than that. that. I, think it's, I think it's actually like less, like a week, just over yeah, a week. So there you go. Uh, okay. All right. This is called the lightning round. It's not really lightning round as I think about it after the last few weeks, but we call it the lightning round because the questions are pretty much the same and you can start predicting them if you listen 
listen to the show and you're ever going to come on. Ileana, do you have a favorite Yiddish word or phrase? Spilke. Oh, I, I love that because it's uh, it's like uh, I feel like very it's opposite. Okay, that's a really good one, and we haven't heard that from any of our guests before. What, uh, what else have you guys heard? Um, what else? We, we've heard balagan, which is not, I guess, technically. We had a Yiddish. mensch. We had mensch. We've heard. Uh, that's like right. barely Yiddish anymore. You know, it's Michigas. Michigas is my other one. Yeah, because yeah, mis- I have both Spilkis and Michigas. Oi, oi. <laughs> <laughs> I think the problem here is like we you really got to limit it to one because now we're you know that's Michigas that could have been a future guest and we're gonna if that comes like next episode somebody says Michigas we're gonna be like now nah, I'm sorry that's taken that's taken. But if you're a reporter or an editor in chief that covers so, Washington, totally. Michigas is like uh, well, you know. My mom is from uh, Lima, Peru. But her parents came uh, to Peru from Romania, and they were Yiddish speakers. And so my mom, uh, my mom has a good understanding of Yiddish. She could always understand what her they would talk in Yiddish to, you know, try to sneak one by the kids. Uh, my mom has a good handle on Yiddish. All right. So next one up, what is your favorite Jewish food? It could be Ashkenazi or, or Peruvian or Peruvian. Um, Peruvian, or uh, we are actually big Perjuvian, in Honduras, we call but it. that, as I say, um, is another story. Peruvian, that's new. I like that. Uh, my favorite Jewish food, a potato knish is coming to mind, but I mean, my mom, my mom makes so Peruvian potato knish noodle kugel, so good. This is this is what's amazing is oh latkes and do you have all of these dishes together is this like one one big meal in in the Peruvian tradition the latkes and the knish and the and the kugel is that or this this is separate throughout the year not the latkes but uh, my mom on Rosh Hashanah for Rosh Hashanah lunch and then like breakfast she would always do knishes kugel uh, some blintzes. With sour cream and strawberry jam. Uh, it was really good. All right. Next question. What is your favorite book or what are you reading right now? My favorite book, Jane Austen, really anything Jane Austen, Emma. I was going to say that or War and Peace, which is also, I, but I feel like that's kind of a lame answer, but wonderful books. And I am reading right now. So I read, uh, I read this Robert Kolker book, The House on Hidden Valley Road, about a family of what with 12 kids and six were schizophrenic. Um, and they were, they did a lot of research on the, the scientific research on this family to figure out the, uh, biology of schizophrenia. And that led me to some of his other books, which I'm reading now. Very cool. Who is your favorite journalist or editor of all time? Favorite journalist. I'm going to go with Andy Ferguson, uh, of the late great weekly standard. And the Atlantic, who I think I always thought, you know, would read Andy's pieces in high school uh, and college and think I aspire to write something like that. Uh, He really manages to have one foot in the funny camp and one foot in the serious camp and make serious points with an amazing sense of humor. And there it is. Ileana Johnson, editor-in-chief, the Washington Free Beacon. That was a little bit of Michigas. It was a little spill kiss, <laughs> but I think it all came uh, down to blintzes. So thank you for joining us, Ileana. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Ileana. Hey. 
Okay, and it looks like uh, Shlomo, very nice to meet you, Shlomo, uh, emails us from the great state of Illinois, my home state. I don't know this person, I promise you, I don't know this person. Uh, Asks, if we were to be a U.S. ambassador to any country outside of the Middle East, which country would it be? Uh, I would put two on the list. One is Germany, where my grandfather was born and escaped as a refugee uh, in 1939 on a kinder transport. And given anti-Semitism in Europe today and all the issues with Iran, I would be proud to go back there and serve as an ambassador in Berlin. And if Scotland ever uh, finally gets its way and is independent, uh, I would be happy to serve as an ambassador to Scotland, where that same grandfather ended up settling and where my father was born. Well... I don't know that I have that compelling of a reason, but I think that the uh, the ambassador to the Court of St. James in the United Kingdom is an amazing, uh, amazing posting. And it is, uh, you know, carries with it so much history. Um, I would say the other the second choice, maybe the first choice is to be the ambassador to the Czech Republic. I believe the home that houses the U.S. ambassador once served as a headquarters for the Luftwaffe. Um, when it was uh, when, when the Germans were occupying Czechoslovakia, and uh, to hear a former ambassador talk about having Shabbos dinner on a table with a Nazi inventory number on the bottom of it is like the ultimate in Am Yisrael Chai. So that that that's that's my pick. If you want a question answered on the air, send us an email to podcast at jewishinsider.com and feel free to send us tips and show ideas as well. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family. If you don't like what you heard, don't tell anybody. Follow us on Clubhouse and on Twitter at JI Podcast. And remember to follow and subscribe to the Limited Liability Podcast on your podcast listening medium of choice. Use social media for good and spread the word. And until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah. yeah.